Welcome to number eight of the International Running Enthusiast. Today with Toby Tanzer, an international running ambassador living partly in Eton, partly in New York. There are many things to introduce about him. He is on the coaching advisory board of the Runners World. He has been for 15 years of the on the board of directors for the New York City Marathon. He organized cha uh, charity runs for Hope and Possibility. He is a CEO of Shoe for Africa. Um, he's a vice president of Achilles. And he's a coach at Highlines, and he's a best-selling author of different books like Train Hard, Win Easy, More Fire, or A Guide to Running the New York City Marathon. I hope I didn't forget anything. <laughs> Welcome, Toby. Thank you. So my podcast always starts with a short running update from my side first. Actually, I think uh, the last podcast I took was before, um, I think before I did my 4x4K on Thursday. Well, actually, the last couple of trainings didn't go too well because I often died a little bit too much. Yesterday, I did a long run, which I wanted to do 35 till 37. But, but in the end, I got some cramps in my stomach for the third time here. I don't know if it's because of breathing here or I don't know. I, I feel a little bit too tired. So I decided to, to take it more easy now from now on. So that's mm -hmm. my running update. Then there's also a short, always a short questionnaire for every interviewee. So let's start with the basic info about you. What's your name and how old are you? I'm 50 and my name is Toby Tanza. <laughs> okay. And since when do you know me? Um, since two weeks ago, mm -hmm. one week ago. And how do we know each other? You are staying at the High Altitude Training Center in Iten, Kenya. Yeah. And you as well. I'm also a guest at the High Altitude. And our interview today will be in English, right? Or are you fluent okay. in German, yeah. Dutch or French? I can speak Swedish ah, and Swedish, Icelandic. Nah. <laughs> yeah. I don't have that one on my list yet. In my questionnaire, there are always some questions about running. Mm -hmm. First is always, why do you run? Habit. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's habitual. I get up in the morning and I feel for running and it makes me feel good. And I've never regretted a run that I did in the day, so I keep on doing it. Okay, that's impressive. I've regretted some, I think, or maybe some, I took some decisions sometimes during run, runs where I thought afterwards, maybe it would have been better to, I don't know, to cancel earlier or to, to do it differently. Anyway, um, what are your favorite distances in running? Um, no, I mean, I, I don't have favorite distances. I just love to run. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I run for just because I enjoy running per se. I don't have a distance. I just go out in the morning. So I don't race. I just... You know, I'm not competitive. I only run for fun. Okay, but you used to be competitive. Long time ago, but now <laughs> it's all just just going out. So if you say, I mean, I would say not a favorite distance, but just because I'm working these days. So I usually run for about 40 minutes. And I don't really find time where I could run long runs anymore. Mm -hmm. Because um, when I used to do long runs, they tend to take two, three hours. Mm -hmm. And if you do a long run, then it kind of, uses up your whole day whereas uh, a 40 minute run is very convenient so yeah that's true that's the distance i like to run and in your competitive days what were mm. your favorite distances and your prs over those distances um i can't remember seven kilometers was the distance i liked to run the best which was between obviously between five and ten but uh five kilometers i ran just under 14 minutes and then um, 10 kilometers i ran just under 29 minutes and then up to the half marathon I ran 63 
for the half marathon. And then I was starting, I was, you know, I'm tall, I'm six foot two, 187. Mm-hmm. I'm not very economical. Mm-hmm. So the further I went, the less economical. So perhaps, yes, five to seven kilometers was my favorite distance to run. Okay. Seven kilometers. Is that a, an official distance? That there's you can a lot, run of, lot of road races in Europe that okay. are not a lot. I mean, there's quite a few around seven kilometers. Okay. Yeah. And in uh, American, it's, you know, between four and five miles. And mm-hmm. I live in New York and we have uh, four and five mile races all the time because Central Park has three loops one okay. is uh i mean they have a four mile course they have a five mile course and a six mile course so. mm-hmm. and what would you say are your next goals in running just to keep on running i don't have goals i mean i don't it might i mean it doesn't everyone always understands it as some sort of competitive goals but i mean you can also have a goal of i don't know just being able to run or feeling good about running no, that's, or, that's, that's yeah. what i said keep on running yeah. i mean just to like I, when I was competitive, I thought I would never run for fun. Mm-hmm. Now I'm running for fun. I can't imagine <laughs> the thought of doing competitions. Okay. Then let's move to the main interview. I thought today we could focus a little bit about the the books that you wrote and how your running bio from living a lot of your life also in Eton or spending a mm-hmm. lot of time amongst Kenyan runners influenced that. So maybe as an intro, you can give a, an overview of your Kenyan running bio, let's say, or in general, your what's your connection to the Kenyan running culture? My connection to the running, Kenyan running culture was really just, I came here as an athlete myself to come over the, I was living in Sweden at the time. Mm-hmm. And in Sweden, it gets very cold and dark and icy. So the habit was for Northern Hemisphere athletes to go to warm weather over the winter. And somebody mm-hmm. invited me to come and train in Kenya. When was it? That was in 1995. Mm-hmm. So I came really just to escape the bad weather. And because I knew the world's best runners came. So it was really just I wanted to come and learn. Mm-hmm. And I'd only really started running at that stage only a couple of years. I was a heavy smoker before. So I'd quit to try and change my life. Mm-hmm. And I was running at a good standard in Sweden, which allowed me to get uh, paid to run. So my holiday really was to keep in shape and to go to a warm country. And most people at that time, they went to Albuquerque in New Mexico Mm -hmm. or to Boulder, Colorado or places like that or the Pyrenees. And But I had an Irish friend who invited me to come to Kenya. So I took a leap of faith and came to Kenya. Okay. And in 1995, was it a crazy choice to come to Eton for a training camp? Yes, there was no, I mean, for instance, when I first came to Eton, there was about four or five cars here and Mm -hmm. about 90% less buildings than there are today. Mm -hmm. It was much, much simpler, a basic, there were no foreigners apart from Brother Colm, who was the only one really in town, but he was a good foreigner to know. So, okay. And my Irish friend who didn't actually end up turning up with me, he knew Brother Colm, so I decided to go and see Brother Colm anyway. And mm-hmm. that's how I kind of fell into Eten. And the good part about it was being the only foreigner, I was like a speciality novelty person. Yeah. So I was invited to everybody's home and all the runners took me home to their homes. And so I got a very, very deep immersion into Kenyan running. Mm-hmm. And would you say now it's a normal choice to, to come here for a training center? Yes. I mean, now Eten is, is world famous, which really, I mean... Mo Farah did a, a lot to put this place on the map. We even had paparazzi here. 
mm-hmm. when he was staying in uh, Iten. But yeah, no, if you go into town, you'll you'll see. I think there's probably about eighty to a hundred Europeans living in Iten right now. And how did you end up always coming back for for a couple of months or during the years? It was always for training. No, when I first came, <clears throat> I wanted to be. I was starting off with my career in running, as I said, I'd only been running a couple of years, but I'd reached the national standard in my own country. And so I thought I had, I thought I was, you know, I was doing well, I was progressing well, I was winning a lot of races. So I just wanted to get faster, of course. So I thought, okay, watch what the Kenyans do and then I'll copy them. But when I was running here in Kenya, I couldn't but help notice all the problems and little things that I thought I myself could fix. Mm-hmm. And... I had been donating when I was younger to a, an international charity. And I remember reading about how they used to have board meetings down in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And it was a British charity. And I thought, well, all my money is just going to flying them down for their board retreat. Mm-hmm. So I had no real interest in charity. And then when I came to Africa as well, the same thing. I didn't really see a lot of production that made me want to go into that field. But So I thought, okay, well, let me do projects myself. Let me just see if I can change this or do that or help this person or help that person. Mm-hmm. So ironically, although I'd come to Kenya to try and run, I actually found myself moving away from running mm-hmm. and doing other things here. Yeah. And then that's what my, my life now in uh, Kenya is not about running at all. Mm-hmm. It's I only happen to know all the runners. That's why yeah. I keep involved in the running community per se. And a lot of my friends are either coaches or former athletes or, and then, you know, some of the younger people that I know are now famous runners and things. So I'm involved in the running only through that social type type of way. Yeah. But yeah, no, I just became involved in charity things here in Kenya. Okay. And projects. But you also got involved in writing here, right? And yeah, that was really by mistake too, just because (laughs) I was staying on the national team's training camp. And everyone would sleep all through the day and I wanted to do th- different things. And so it frustrated me in having nothing to do because there was no electricity and everyone was just lying in bed. So I just thought, let me start making notes. So yeah, really I fell into a, a writing career just by mistake of just being there and jotting down. And, you know, I mean, all my writing is really just observations of what I saw. It's mm-hmm. not uh, yeah anything else. So. Sort of out of boredom. Out of boredom and just, <laughs> I, you know, just being, um, looking and noticing all these things and deciding. And also I knew when I got back to Sweden, everyone would be asking me questions. So I thought rather than answer to every single one of them, yeah. if I'd put everything down and then I had so many notes, I thought, mm, maybe I have a book here. Yeah. So maybe yeah. today you would have started a podcast instead. <laughs> I, pr- I probably would as the trends go. I, yeah, I mean, I... I started a, a web page a long time ago in the year 2000 when nobody had web pages, but that mm-hmm. was really just to collect shoes and that was just a, so yeah, I, I tend to do what I needed to do to suit my lifestyle yeah. at the time. So you're probably right. I probably would have because I was meeting all the most interesting runners and they had a lot of very interesting tales to tell yeah. and stories to tell. So Okay. And the first book you published, Train Hard, Win Easy, it was published, I think, in 1997, right? Correct. Would you say is that still the philosophy, or can you maybe shortly summarize what's the, what's like the main content of it? And would you still say most of the points still hold true for the Kenyan running culture? I would because the the concept train hard when easy. I give you an example. When uh, I've trained with runners from all over the world, I've been very lucky. I've lived with different runners in different countries and trained with national teams, trained with groups, and 
very, very uh, a wide variety of very good, talented runners, and I've always been lucky enough to be able to observe, see what they're doing in the field. And one of the things, like for instance, I remember with one group of runners, we'd go to the track and we'd see which way the wind was blowing, and then we'd run 200 meter repeats with the wind on our back. And then when the weather was hot, we'd take off our shirts, or you know, and when they go to the track, they wear lightweight shoes called spikes, you know, to uh, try mm -hmm. and do the. And then when I came to Kenya, I saw the exact opposite. People were trying to make the training as hard as possible. So through the thickest mud, they would run. Mm -hmm. And on the hottest day, they would add layers of clothing. Mm -hmm. And when the shoe size was eight, they would wear size 13. All these things trying to make training more difficult. So when they come to the race, it would feel easy. So when I was observing this, and I just thought it was like train hard, win easy. Because when you come to the competition, then... You know, you fly, you feel fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so I still, I, I think in the West, sometimes we, we try to make training easy for ourselves just mm -hmm. because we're used to a convenience life. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Kenya, they know the only way out is through hardship. Mm -hmm. And so they're prepared to put themselves in deeper. So, I mean, it's a, a title that I think was misconstrued. A lot of people thought it was, you know, kind of boastful. But like, what's this? But it was really just meaning. What look, is it, boastful? Boastful, you know, kind of like train hard, win easy, you know. It's it's not a win you yourself. It's winning over the competition. Therefore, you're winning almost by yourself through your actions, mm -hmm. rather than maybe I've described it wrong. It's it's not like a macho type. Mm -hmm. Aren't I great? Aren't I all about winning and all about me? Yeah. It's the concept of putting yourself so deep in training that the the actual competition feels easy. Yeah. But do you think it's really a choice here always that the training is so hard? Like on the long runs, I never see anyone drinking here or taking any uh, electrolytes or gels or so with them or with the shoes. What you're saying, maybe it's also more of a matter that it's not an active choice, but maybe rather because there's no possibility to uh, that everyone has like a, a camel bag with some water or maybe if you get some <laughs> shoes for free you cannot really choose the size or no you're, you're speaking about one group of runners i mean what you talk about there are the runners that aren't assisted like if you run with for instance like you know the big group in captagat or mm -hmm. groups in Kapsabat, you'll see coaches and they pass water out of the windows or more electrolytes and sports drinks these days. Okay. I mean, a lot of the top athletes now in Kenya are sponsored by sports nutrition brands. So no, it's changed dramatically. I mean, you know, when I was running back in the 90s, this stuff didn't exist, but now it does in very much. Mm -hmm. So it depends on which training group you actually run with. So that is very prevalent now. I mean, people yeah. do. But I mean, that's, that's a little thing. I mean, drinks while you're running, they won't not drink on purpose because it, you can't train yourself for dehydration. That's not a thing. But you can <laughs> yeah. train yourself to put on an extra layer of clothes and suffer yeah, yeah, yeah. in the okay, heat. And then, you know, when you're running with a singlet on the race day, it feels liberating. Yeah. And would you say, would you say that philosophy works for everyone? Um, well, I would say that no philosophy works for everyone. I mean, it, yeah. it doesn't work in that way. And I would say that circumstance in here, what, one of the biggest advantages i think for the kenyan runners is no choice meaning that out here in kenya you have very very few opportunities in life and if you look at most of the runners i can't think of many that have gone on to further education had opportunities of being offered bank positions of being a bank manager or anything you know these are people that come from villages not mm -hmm. even Eldoret, which is the biggest city to where we are now it's not even a city it's a town 
and but with about 300,000 people nobody comes from inside Eldoret they come from these small little villages that are mm -hmm. dotted around the countryside and usually they're lucky if they finish uh, primary school and then what options do they have you know it's 40% unemployment in this region of Kenya and if you haven't gone to secondary and then university the chances of getting a quality job are very slim so you're faced with no other options Kenyans are often for the vast majority of them, I'd say, is they're running for financial reasons. They're not running for fun or that they enjoy running. They're yeah. running to try and make a living. Yeah. But still, maybe you could maybe you could avoid some injuries or some... I feel like the philosophy of always training harder also has some risks to it and might yeah might not propel everyone to, to race at their best. If you train easy, you'll never get to the starting line in Kenya. <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, so many people are training hard here. And I remember a quote that uh, Paul Turgat, who is a five-time World Cross Country champion, once said to me, you know, he said, there's too many cooks in the kitchen already. Unless you're prepared to face the heat, get out of the kitchen. Okay. The problem here in Kenya for many runners is there's so many people willing to train hard that if you are not willing to train hard, maybe you better try another sport or you. Mm -hmm. But that only one option makes people willing mm -hmm. to actually go for that because if you don't run, then what are you going to do? You know, I mean, Kenya doesn't have a, an abundance of swimming talent. It doesn't have an abundance of badminton players or yeah. there's very few options here. And when you go to, I mean, I live in New York, which must be the city with the most opportunities in the world. You can do whatever you want. You can reinvent yourself every day. Try a different sport, do this or do that. When you're living in a little Kenyan village of, you know, a couple of hundred people, what are you going to do? Yeah. And then some years later, you wrote the book More Fire, which is also about the Kenyan running culture. Yeah. Where's the difference? No, it's just more detailed and it goes into more things like cultural and talks about uh, women runners and just more observations about... Mm -hmm. And it's more like a lifestyle book. And But again, the same thing. It's just looking... I think one of the advantages for me is most journalists come here, they look around and then they, they write their comments. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time training and just absorbing and mm -hmm. seeing. So my comments are really observations of what I see. There's a lot of Kenyan run, uh, journalists who have come here. They've watched the Kenyan runners. I actually ran all the sessions with them. Yeah. I finished the sessions with them. I raced with them. I went to races with them. So it's a different perspective. It's like, and I don't think there's been a journalist who's done yeah. done that. Although there are qualified people that could, like for instance, the Robertsons twins mm -hmm. who lived in Iten for a long, long time. They could write a fantastic book because you know they had that in depth mm -hmm. also. And do you have any future books planned on the Kenyan yes. running culture? Or? No, not on the no. Kenyan running culture. Although, because Train Hard Win Easy was such a good uh, book, it was so long ago, I might do uh, another version of that, but mm -hmm. with, you know, more up-to-date and chiseled mm -hmm. out. And, and that also, um, I started looking at the, the possibility of writing a book about the Kenyan history going back to the the 1920s mm -hmm. and I touch briefly in more fire about that but I, I also that's an interesting how colonization played a part in the Kenyan running here and who were the people that pulled it together and mm -hmm. because I have some friends here in Kenya actually who want to do a Kenyan history but they're starting when Kenya got independence in 1963 mm -hmm. but it started a lot earlier that you know it's like an undocumented story I think it would be okay. a good story to do but if in Particularly for running, you wouldn't say there's like a certain book missing or so, or a certain aspect that hasn't been 
covered in a book that would interest you? A, a few Kenyan runners have asked me to write uh, their autobiographies. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it standalone one person's story is enough to mm -hmm. make a whole book for a, a large interest. I don't know whether, you know, a book of maybe a book of maybe 12 runners or something would be more interesting. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's very hard. One of the Kenyan runners, you know, his life was interesting, but he wanted to leave out a lot of the interesting parts. I don't know whether there's, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's always room for another book. And it's, I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's an amazing amount of people actually who come to Kenya mm -hmm. and say that they are going to write a book, but most <laughs> of them kind of fade away. You know, Kenyan running, one of the big secrets about it is, well, not real secrets, but it's organic and it's old fashioned. And if you look at the training schedules of people like Elliot Kipchoge, D uh, David Radisha, all these big names here, it's a very, very basic training mm -hmm. set, uh, schedules. And for instance, the, the one that Elliot is using was used by Felix Limo mm -hmm. back in 2004. So things aren't changing very much. Yeah. It's so, you know, if you just go back and see what Felix was doing, and then you'll also have the training philosophies, ideas, principles, blah, blah, are the ones. Yeah. So maybe those other writers, what they are lacking, they are not running. So how would you say, does running help you in writing? Running helps you because you see it just from another dimension. I mean, writing is three-dimensional. You know, you look at writing and then you write from your... And you can tell if somebody's writing about something that they haven't experienced, mm -hmm. you can read it in their writing. So I think it really helps just because you feel the pain. And, I, you know, I remember one of the runners telling me, you know, to run 206 in the marathon, he said it was pain and bruising right from the gun. And... The way that he described it and then, you know, mile by mile of the suffering. Mm -hmm. I've never really seen a journalist kind of talk, up, talk about that. We all tend to think of the marathon as, oh, you know, the, the starting gun goes off and, you know, you run, you're smiling and you feel good. Mm -hmm. and, but it's painful. And, you know, there's a lot of writers that don't write about the misery and mm -hmm. the pain and also the bad side of it. Because it's probably not attractive reading, you know, to read about the, the troubles and the hardships of trying to get that. And there's a lot of Kenyan stories that don't get written about because yeah. uh, it's almost as a journalist you don't want to tell that story because sometimes you know life is a little bit private mm -hmm. and there's certain things it's, it's a hard you know you see a lot of hardship in it and a lot of, I mean I always it always amazes me how many Kenyan stories don't get to the the press mm -hmm. and it's almost like I think a lot of people here they they don't talk about a lot of issues and in this world of you know media everywhere and Stuff like this. It's surprising that how many, there's a lot of Kenyan Americans who've had very, very terrible stories. Yeah. And you kind of, you get little brief stories about it a little bit or, but nothing in depth or, but it's not really a book that you'd want to write because it's kind of a sad story too. Yeah. Because here in the tent, there's, you know, every morning maybe there's, you know, maybe 500 runners going out training and maybe 50 of them will make it as a runner mm -hmm. and a lot of them won't. And it's hard stories that they face. Because people here, the the reasons for running are different from the West, where we run for keeping in shape, for trying to be better than our friends, or you know, yeah. just because some friends are doing a fun run down the road. You know, here it's a struggle in life, and often running is the only option to take yourself out of poverty. Yeah, but maybe writing about that is also more difficult because if you want to really report about something negative, you also have to have all the information and maybe getting that information and getting the full picture 
is maybe more difficult than having the feeling that you have the full picture of a positive thing well, that you I, want to describe? I think a good, a good writer is an objective writer who comes to a situation and then writes and then leaves the area. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, it's very hard when you come and you, it's the people you know that you're writing about and you don't want to throw them under the bus type of thing because the next time you come back, mm -hmm. it's almost like you look at them in the eye and they say, well, you know, you exposed or you told or you... And it's difficult because, you know, to writing about people's problems or things like that. It's because there is another side to the Kenyan running. And why don't you want to write more about it? Because you think people might not be interested in reading those sad stories. No, no. I mean, I, I think I found that myself, I wasn't... I did a lot of journalism writing. When I first moved to New York, I, I started writing for a number of magazines and mm -hmm. newspapers and journals and things. And I started to run a write a lot of stuff, just not books, but, you know, articles and things. And I I got privy to some information where if I wrote about these runners, I would almost destroy their life. Just, you know, stuff that was startling and stuff that has actually come out with other athletes has made, you know, headline news. Mm -hmm. But do you really want to be that person that tells that story? And mm -hmm. I think that's the problem for connection. I've seen people come to... Uh, Kenya, for instance, and write a good story and then they disappear and then they go and write a story about golf or another story mm -hmm. about tennis. But if you're coming back to the same place again, sometimes you don't want to write about the things that you see. And what makes you come back always to this place? No, I love Kenya. I mean, for me, it uh, feels like home to me. Mm -hmm. And so much of my work is here. You know, I look at it as being in New York. I'm there for fundraising, mm -hmm. trying to get money to do the, the projects that I want to do here. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, although I don't live here, I live more out of a Kenya. I actually feel that Kenya is my home, per se. Yeah. And you also founded a, or you, you built up the first children's hospital here, and now you're sort of in the process of building a library here. Do you mm. see that your projects over the year have really a positive impact on the lives of the people here in Iten? Yeah, no, I mean, not in Iten. I haven't done... Uh, My projects are just in this area. Like I started off when I started my first projects, I was all over the place. I mean, I was mm -hmm. giving shoes to the Tamil tigers in Sri Lanka, trying to stop them from. I, I know I always have this idea that running heals everything. So, and then I was giving shoes to Ukraine. I had races in Tanzania. I had races here in Kenya. I was giving out. So it was all over the place. It wasn't that I had uh, women's races here in Iten too, but it was a lot of different places. But I have seen positive impact. Yeah, I'm in the hospital that I built. It's the only public children's hospital mm -hmm. for the whole of Eastern Central Africa, which is Large. almost a quarter of a billion people. And when I say there's no public children's hospital, what I mean is children are forced then to go to adults' hospitals. Mm -hmm. And before my hospital, I went to an adults' hospital. For instance, here there's one in Eldoret, which is the second largest hospital in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And it was running at 150% occupancy. So when you run at 150% occupancy, if a child comes to the door and an adult comes to a door, they'll treat the adult to heal first mm -hmm. because if they treat the child and the adult dies, then there's 10 more orphans on the street tomorrow. Yeah. Whereas if they treat the adult, then at least the adult is now the caretaker for a system that doesn't have social security and doesn't have a net. Mm -hmm. And there's already too many street children here. So there was just a terrible overcrowding. So a lot of the mothers I was talking to, they didn't even bother taking their children to hospital mm -hmm. anymore. They were just saying, why? We just sit in the waiting rooms and we're never treated because mm -hmm. it was just an OMA. So I thought if I build a hospital that is just for children, giving them a priority, then I'll do something. So yeah. it doesn't. At the moment, we're treating over 400 patients every single day. So it's made a big impact to this area. Yeah. And do you feel you can also impact something through, through your writing? 
Or do you have any future plans on doing more charity through writing? Probably not. To be honest, I'm not really the best writer. Sometimes when I read my writing, it's not... <laughs> Like, for instance, I, I don't recommend people buy any of my books, which isn't perhaps the right thing for <laughs> anybody to say. Uh, you know, I mean, I think I was just more of a writer that just observed things and wrote mm -hmm. them down rather than a talented writer for... I, I think, you know, I prefer to talk rather than write. So, no, I mean, but I think, you know, writing is just... It's, it's a great way to tell a story mm -hmm. and, you know, with a... I mean, I, and I love to read, so... Definitely not anti-writing, but, I mean, I, I think I have my limitations with writing. Yeah. And you see other things mm -hmm. where you have to, where you can have more impact through your skills outside of writing. I think, I think I'm just very lucky in the fact that I know a lot of people and know a lot of good, interesting people and people then that can facilitate and help. You know, I mean, for instance, you know, I remember one day I was driving through the Kenyan countryside and this woman, a woman who was very poor, she was a little farmer. Mm -hmm. And she only had a little patch of land and she was saying, like, I really wish, you know, I also could help like you do. And I mean, she had a big heart and the only difference between me and her was that, you know, the people that she knew aren't able to give money. But the people that I, I know, some of them are able to give money. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I always, we're all given different talents and I think... One of my talents is I come here, I see things, and then I'm able to fundraise. Yeah. And then through my organization, I'm able to do things like now we're trying to build a, a children's cancer hospital. It's the whole of sub-Saharan Africa, which is over a billion people. Mm -hmm. There's not one single children's cancer hospital. And next year we'll do it. We'll start building. It's just how big we'll build. Okay. So, you know, I, I've only, I'm only able to do these things because of travel and meeting interesting people that yeah. open doors and things like that so although i'd love to spend all my time just writing and sitting and you know being in a writer's retreat on top of a mountain maybe i'm really you would i'm not meant to do that maybe no i, I love writing i love okay. you know getting a cup of coffee in the morning and just sitting and writing with the mountains in front okay but i you know maybe my life is stuck in new york Yeah. going to begging meetings begging for money and getting turned down but <laughs> keeping on with that runner's resilience yeah. knowing that one day you'll get the donations would you say riding and running requires the same qualities again you know i'm not really the expert to speak on <laughs> either one but i'd say there are definitely a lot of similarities i mean writing is a solitude of course same with running i mean it's a very much it's a you sport it's not a teamwork the best writers i think they They're little, sometimes loners, and I sometimes think that runners also, uh -huh. they're good. You've got to love your own company, I think, to be a long-distance runner. And you've got to love your own company, I think, to be a writer. Yeah. Then let's move to the lessons learned. Maybe you as the, the Kenyan running expert, sort of, who has lived many years here and in New York, and you have many mm -hmm. connections throughout the Kenyan running community. Mm -hmm. What are your... The main lessons, not only the lessons are always related to the subject, so to writing, but I see maybe I, or you can also, I don't know, talk a little bit about the lessons you learned outside of writing, just from being the Kenyan running culture ambassador, sort of what did you take away? Um, no, I mean, I, I think it's like anything. It's like, you know, if you're here for 25 years, you you see certain things and you, I mean, I see, you know, we stay in a camp with uh, a lot of people who are coming in. I hear their first observations. And I also remember when I came, my first observations and things. And there's, 
you know, people are always looking for secrets. They're always looking for, you know, what is that secret of the Kenyan in it? I, I describe it, and I've always described it as a cheesecake with 14 or so slices of cake, meaning that when you come here, it's not just one. And, you know, when I wrote my book, you know, it was like people would ask me, so, so what is the secret? You know, what is that one thing? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the hard training is, of course, you know, the most obvious, but there's mm-hmm. many, many little things also that yeah. come here. But it's little things of the mentality. And for instance, like, you know, I was telling you before, I used to train with people from other cultures and countries. And just, for instance, how they would, how the Kenyans approach training and their thoughts of not cutting corners and, trying to train hard, you know, like taking less time in the intervals rather than more time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I always go back to the cutting the corners when we run with a group or in a Kenyan group and we're going around the corner, they all hold the line rather than go for the shortest line. Mm-hmm. But my friends in some of the European countries where they do all try to cut and I'm literally cutting off each other's strides, mm-hmm. trying to make the, the shortest line or something. Mm-hmm. All these little things come together. You know, the altitude is one thing, the... The food is another. Genetics is obviously another. All these things come together. And the fact of little Kenyan children, you know, right from the age of the get-go, they're walking, they're going around, they're not being pushed in perambulators. They're going to the fields, they're carrying firewood, they're doing jobs, they're Mm. walking kilometers and kilometers. All these things together. They make every single slice together, makes it the perfect place for running. And it's the Rift Valley. I mean, people often talk about Kenyan running. But it, it's not really true. It's yeah. basically it's this area, the Rift Valley, and then a little bit spread out. But if you go to the east coast, yeah. you won't find any runners there. Yeah. And I don't think there's anybody who's made the national team for decades who comes from Mombasa or Lamu along the coast along yeah. there. So obviously it's not Kenyan running. And then if you look at there's one area in Kenya with a 50-mile radius where almost every single Olympic steeplechase champion since 1968 has ever come from. Okay. So if you say it's not genetics, you're also saying, well, how come then it's just this small area? So genetics plays a part, but it's not the overall. And of course, yeah, there's outliers in the same way. Paula Radcliffe is tall, whereas most of the Kenyan marathon runners are small. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Paula happens to be the fastest in the world. But outliers and the norm are two separate things. I could talk for a lot about you know the Kenyan secrets and the Kenyan attributes that come along, but it's a lot of things that yeah. go into the mix that make this the most perfect place in the world. The Rift Valley, and I say, you know, the Rift Valley runs up from, you know, it's like, is it 3,000 miles? Is it 6,000 miles? I can't remember, but it runs through Africa. So there's a lot of places like, yeah. look at the Ethiopian runners, you know, how many fantastic Ethiopian runners there are too. Yeah, I think one part of the of understanding it is also just coming here. Like after already mm. two weeks of being here, I have a I don't know, I have a different understanding of. I mean, I didn't read your book. I cannot really Good. say I'm that. I'm glad. No, no, no. But I, I wanted mm. to say I probably after having read your book, I'm just saying that my understanding is sort of larger after coming here. Um, no, no, but it's good. You came and you see with your own eyes and you see, yeah. and then bit by bit. But as you can imagine, if you stayed here for another two years, yeah. another four years, you'd start to... Yeah. So that, that leaves me with links to your social media or anything where people can follow your project. So any link that you want to share with the listeners? I, I'm really bad with social media. <laughs> and when I first started in 2008, What happened, I never had a plan to build a a children's hospital. Mm -hmm. I met a lady whose child was burnt alive before Mm -hmm. her eyes and 
some things happened. And anyway, so I just, I decided to build the hospital on the spur of the moment, but I didn't used to like asking for money and which seems odd from somebody who works in the charity, mm -hmm. but I felt like if I was not going to ask, I mean, if I was going to ask for money, then I had to throw something in myself. Mm -hmm. So I said, my charity is going to be different from everyone else's. A hundred percent of, you know, donations are actually going to go to the cause. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to hire any social media team. We're not going to hire any PR team. We're not going to. So I made this big list of all the money just goes to construction mm -hmm. and nobody would be hired. Everyone had worked for free mm -hmm. because nobody wanted to work for me. That's why I worked alone and still worked alone today for my charity. Mm -hmm. But the whole concept of which is a lot of the charities today they have fantastic social medias. They have, you know, I have a friend who has a charity in New York and they pay $100,000 to their videographer. And then they have a social media team that makes posts and things. Mm -hmm. So if you're one of the small charities like me, mm -hmm. you know, people go like, well, you're so lazy. Look, your Twitter feed is so terrible. You're so... <laughs> but you know, there isn't enough hours in the day yeah. to do these. So, I mean, I'm on Facebook and uh, I try to do updates on what we're doing. But still, don't you have any link where if people are interested in your work, where they can uh, they go get to, information about your projects, yes. donate or follow it? Or, go I mean, to Shoe for Africa. Shoe for Africa. Shoe okay. for Africa. And then that's the four, the digit four. Yeah. And it's shoe because I lost one shoe. Okay. It's not shoes as meaning. A lot of people think it's shoes for Africa. It yeah. wasn't. It was I lost one shoe in Africa. So it became shoeforafrica.org. Okay. And if you go to that website, you'll see we have like latest news and history. Mm -hmm. And you can scroll back and see all our, our projects and what we're up to. Okay. And then, you know, you can email me too and I'll put you on our very slow to come out <laughs> newsletter which comes about three times a year okay but yeah i am planning one of these days to update the charity and try and make it more efficient because i would love to do far more of the project work and less of the the begging side yeah. of it but the begging is tedious and hard and also you have beggar fatigue that yeah. people really don't want to get my emails anymore because i'm always asking for money yeah. or talking about the latest project so i'd love actually to be a part of a charity where i'm not yeah. I'm not all the different parts of it. I'm just the person doing the projects here. Because, you know, that's what I enjoy most, being here in Africa yeah. and doing the work that's actually on the ground. Yeah. But unfortunately, no charity functions without donations. Yeah. But don't you think providing a more insight to your work, maybe via social media, I mean, it doesn't have to be like a shiny $100,000 person doing mm -hmm. that, but maybe you just providing some insight might already raise the awareness and some willingness to donate from people? I think so. I mean, like, for instance, somebody said, like, how did you build the hospital? And, you know, for instance, what steps did you do? And why didn't you document it? And why didn't you? you know, and I was like, oh, yes, good, good question. <laughs> so I've always, but I, I mean, I, I'm in the same position now when I'm starting the next hospital. Yeah. And it, it becomes, I think the problem is the clutter. There's so much out there today. I mean, there's 1.7 million charities in America alone. In New York, where I live, one of the great things about New York, of course, is all the connections and all the things. One of the bad things about it is there's so many charities doing all this stuff. And people's mind just flips between. So it's even very hard to keep somebody's attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you post a, a video of what you're doing on YouTube or something. Yeah. Immediately that video stops another video that YouTube has put that's also doing exactly the same yeah. thing. And someone else says, oh, that's good, blah, blah, blah. So it's very hard to, and you work so hard on social media to try and, and so you have to balance what's the worth. And what I've seen in um, 
the world of donation hunting and charity work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could write the dummies guide to fundraising and because <laughs> I mean, I've been through a lot from, uh, and not just for my charity, also for other charities yeah. too. The big question is, is how much time do you actually put into each thing? And then how much time should you put into each thing? Yeah. Sometimes it's the big donations that actually power you on further. So maybe it's better to spend more time going after the six-figure donations rather than spending a lot of time. Social media, one of the greatest examples, there was a big charity had, I think, 1.5 million hits to a video that it posted mm -hmm. and eight donations. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, and they had like a fantastic film and they put it. And this was a yeah. huge organization in um, America that mobilizes people that yeah. want to do something good. And literally eight donations Okay. they got. And, you know, these aren't donations that are going to smash the bank account. These are like, you know, yeah. $15 or... Yeah, yeah. And then you think of, you know, if you pay yourself per hour or just think of your time. But the, the bad thing in charities, you can justify everything. You can say, oh, well, you know, the outreach, oh, yeah, everybody learning about it. But the truth of the matter is what you end up doing. For instance, if somebody is asking me today, you know, which charity do I donate to? I always say... Go to the website and actually see what they've done, not what they're talking about, not what the presentation says that they're going to do. Mm -hmm. Look what they've done and how they spend the money, mm -hmm. and then you will see. And ultimately, what are they actually doing with that donation? Are they saving lives? Are they, you know? Yeah. I mean, in New York, for instance, there's a lot of people that donate for Central Park. Mm -hmm. Millions of dollars to Central Park, the beautification and I think that's just maybe, you know, I've become too much of a lunatic because I see it too much when I'm here. You know, children dying just of the want of a paracetamol, just because of want of a glass of water, just for want of basic food. You know, people dying because of the basic needs here. Mm -hmm. You know, medicines, things like that. And then you think, you know, what is important in this life? And sure enough, I mean, there's all these great causes around the world. Yeah, no, I mean, and then I become too focused on my own things, of course, yeah. yeah. But, Okay, thank you for the interview today. I'll Most put welcome. Shoe for Africa in the comments, and yeah. And good luck with your continuing <laughs> thank odyssey you. of journeys in Africa. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye bye. bye.